If you want to understand how marketing is changing and how that will affect your brand, you need Future Proof, the podcast from Kantar that tells you how to find growth. Created in conjunction with Side Business School at Oxford University, the Future Proof podcast provides a unique perspective on what truly makes a difference. To understand what's winning in marketing, subscribe to Future Proof, a Kantar podcast now. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. You want to know what the best email marketing service is for your small business? Well, I've got the team for you. Emailtooltester.com is the place to find reviews and tutorials of newsletter services like ActiveCampaign, MailChimp, GetResponse, and many more. Download their free comparison spreadsheet that will help you find the best email marketing service among many providers. Just Google Email Tool Tester Comparison Template to find it. Again, just Google it. Email Tool Tester Comparison Template to find it. You know I've been talking about earned media value for quite some time on this podcast. My friends at Eisenberg have just raised the bar on earned media benchmarks with their social index. Social Index now gives you globally earned media values across a growing list of six geographies for all your KPIs across the top seven social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. You can now visualize these values for deeper analysis, and they have a look-back window over two years of historical comparisons. Social Index is updated daily. Don't get stuck with old data. Over 1,000 companies have used the Social Index to understand the ROI of their social campaigns. And if you work with a social agency, you should demand they incorporate earned media values into your reports. Get your earned media value for social content. Visit earnedmediavalues.com slash Allen. Again, that's earnedmediavalues.com slash A-L-A-N. Today is the 100th episode of Marketing Today. Wow. It's been a personal passion of mine to talk with and learn from some of really the brightest marketing minds around. Leaders from the worlds of business, media, advertising, and academia. And even a couple of musical geniuses in there too. I can't thank all of my amazing guests enough, but I also need to thank you, my listeners. You've been so supportive and the numbers are wild. Marketing Today has listeners in more than 125 countries and over 60,000 downloads and going strong. Thank you. And now on with the show. For all of us, it's about predicting where the consumer is going and getting half of it right. One of the things we want to do is create ads that don't suck. Embracing change creates great possibility. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Today on the show, I've got Colin McConnell, Senior Vice President and Chief Brand Officer for Prudential Financial. 
Colin oversees the company's global marketing communications functions, which include global communications, issues management, brand and marketing, advertising, and decision insights group. Today on the show, we talk about the integration of marketing and the communications function, as well as Prudential's internal agency group, one of the largest that exists, and the financial services category, and much more. I hope you enjoy the talk with Colin McConnell. Well, Colin, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. (laughs) In all its glory on the 12th floor. Yes, (laughs) yes. Well, I'm excited to be here with you today and wanted to start off with just asking you about your background, if you don't mind. Like, tell me where you started your career and how you became the chief brand officer here at Prudential. Okay, so this is short and sweet, Mm -hmm. but also long. I've been at Prudential for, it'll be 27 years in August, which I think is a little unusual for Mm -hmm. people of my generation. And says something about the company, you know, Mm -hmm. and the opportunities that have been presented here and and also the opportunity for talent development, mobility and everything else. So I've been all over the place. I started out actually as a college recruiter. And, you know, for me, it was a job. That was my number one objective with my (laughs) first job, get a job. And uh, did that for a while, enjoyed it, but, you know, kind of sorting out what I want to be when I grow up and do I belong in a corporate environment and Somehow just planted into my head was this notion of speech writing, which I don't know where it came from. It literally just popped into my head. And I was thinking, you know, I'll bet large companies like this probably have a need for speech writers. And I had been a poli-sci major in college and I was always a term paper guy and could put two words together. So like two weeks later, a job posting comes up for a speech writer supporting the C-suite. So I posted for the job. I was the only guy in the company that posted for it. So I got it. (laughs) Doesn't mean it was assured, but it was interesting. I had to take, you know, writing tests and things like that. And obviously, uh, you know, they looked at my performance record and everything else, but they gave me a shot as a young man. And a really interesting time in my career was a little bit of a tough period for Prudential reputationally. And so I got exposed to a lot of interesting things that maybe at at a young age wouldn't have been exposed to crisis management and governance and things Mm -hmm. like that. But did it long enough to realize that it wasn't quite creative enough for me. And Mm. I'd always been a creative person. And I was like, wait a minute, I'm almost right. I need to be a copywriter. So that got me interested in advertising. And it sort of sparked in my head that I've always liked advertising, even when I didn't like advertising, when it was interrupting my programs and I was complaining (laughs) about the advertising, I was still actually analyzing the advertising and reverse engineering the brief and thinking about the media strategy and like, wow, I've been doing that my whole life. I should be in advertising. So another weird thing happens. I'm ready to leave Prudential and go kind of start my career over in an advertising agency if they'll take me. And Prudential decided to build an in-house advertising agency. So I was in the right place. They invited me to be part of the founding team. So I was one of just a handful of people that started what is today one of the country's biggest and best in-house advertising agencies. So I worked my way up through that way and on the brand marketing side. And then over the last couple of years, I've also taken responsibility for communications as well as market insight. Okay, great. I mean, you've been able to have two or three careers here in the span of staying in one company. That's awesome. Not many people have those types of opportunities. No, it's been great. And most of that time right here in Newark. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Well, let's talk about this integration. You just mentioned it of marketing and communications yeah. and the functions. Yeah. And you know, when did that start? I think it was a few years ago. When did that start and, and why was that important? Yeah, 2015 was when I had the opportunity to add communications to the portfolio. I think we would have been better if we'd started earlier, but we're probably 
still a little bit ahead of the pack, I think, in terms of timing. There was a lot going on in the industry, both on the marketing and the comm side, about potential for Marcom integration and why do it. And, you know, most of the reasons that people put out then applied to us. We absolutely knew we could do better in terms of integration of channels and strategy and planning. We knew that we could get better amplification across the board. We knew we could do a better job of presenting a consistent narrative and a corporate image. And and we knew we could be more efficient. There were resources that could be shared. And I think increasingly the way people are looking at companies, brand and reputation are no longer two distinct things that can kind of be managed separately. I think that people really look at them one and the same. And consumers are starting to look at companies more like investors look like companies and analysts look like companies. And so we have to figure out how to survive in that kind of world. So that's how it got started in 2015. Multiple legs to the journey. The communications department needed to grow and modernize and add some new competencies, which we've done. And then we need to figure out how do these two worlds fit together? And I I know there's a lot written about that now, Mm -hmm. and it's actually pretty fun looking at some of the thought leadership on that, you know, three or four years later. And, you know, what have other people been through and what have they learned and and comparing that to what the experience has been like here. But I think the headline on it is that it's been harder going than most people realized. Hmm. Interesting. So you mentioned capabilities. If you don't mind, would you mind elaborating on the capabilities you needed to add inside communications? Yeah, communications at Prudential at that time was heavily built around media relations which obviously is enormously important. But frankly, even the media relations, you know, I thought we needed more scale, but we needed like so many organizations to really up the game in terms of measurement and analytics Mm -hmm. to really understand where we're getting impact. We needed to, as I said, broaden media relations, Mm -hmm. but internal communications, or as we called at the time, I realized when I got here, I, I thought we had an opportunity externally and we did, but the more I looked at it, the more I realized, wow, there's actually a huge upside with employee engagement. Yeah. And so we needed to add creative skill sets that, you know, it was mostly a writing kind of culture. It's, this is no longer a writing world. You know, we're multimedia all the time and we need people that can think in 3D and create things that, you know, traditional communications organizations didn't. So we needed creative capacity. We needed more people that were focused on things like culture and employee value proposition as I said, data analytics, but we also really had to expand our publishing capability. Mm. Channel management and publishing, we just needed, we needed to open more channels and we needed to push more through it. Okay. Now, I have read a lot about the internal agency group that you, mm-hmm. and you've got one of the biggest, a lot of CMOs that I talk to are contemplating on, you know, building in-house capabilities. Yep. Maybe not a full agency, some some have bigger aspirations than others. Can you tell me about that group and how they work with the rest of the organization? Mm-hmm. Sure. So, That was built in 1996 was when we started. So, you know, it's over 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the motivations to do it then, obviously the media world was much, much simpler then. You know, I mean, it was (laughs) actually painfully simple when you look back and think about, my gosh, that was pretty easy work. But we, you know, we had brand dilution in terms of execution. We had lines of businesses that each had, you know, their own agency partnerships. So we didn't have scale in terms of leveraging spend. We didn't have consistency in terms of execution. And obviously there was inefficiency across the board. So I think that, you know, the initial impetus was let's just get our house in order and be more efficient and organized about it. And then we went through several different cycles of maturation from, you know, really kind of command and control in the beginning just to get everything centralized to then more of a shared service orientation. And then the the last part of the journey was really strategic consultancy, Mm. which I think is, you know, the true premium of an agency, whether it's outside or inside a strategy and creative, and obviously need to be measuring and and demonstrate value. So kind of evolved 
and that path over time. One thing that I think is really distinctive about it among in-house agencies is that from the very beginning, we insourced media planning and procurement, and that's pretty rare. And whenever people ask me for advice on that, I mm-hmm. say it's the first thing, just do it. Like even before you build the agency, start with the media, especially with the issues now around transparency and media. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of opacity around how it works, what's in your best interest, and as well as what are the margins and what are the commissions and what are you really paying for and all that. It's nice to never have to worry about that. But even more than that, I mean, so there's savings right off the top. And, you know, media, there's a lot of great media companies, don't get me wrong. And sometimes you need them. Sometimes they fill a niche and they do things better than you could do on your own. But in general, I think a huge advantage, and in particular, because I think media is the new creative. Mm. And, you know, you're no longer in a world where there's limited inventory and it's eight by 10 on a magazine page. You can, if you can think it, you can build it. And as publishers have realized that they need to create value in new ways and they've created their own creative studios and it's all part of the deal, if you have a really awesome nexus between your in-house media team and your in-house creative team, and then a great partnership with that publisher, you can come up with ideas and build them in a much more agile way than you'd ever be able to do if you're trying to tie together a bunch of different agencies. Right, right. I think that's great advice. Any other advice you'd give somebody that you know, starting out on this journey of an in-house agency themselves. You know, it's funny. I think one of the things that we went through that was really tough growing pain was we built it in that that simple media world, right? Mm -hmm. And then digital came along and upended everything. (laughs) And we had to cross through that with very limited resources. And like everybody in the world, trying to figure out what is the right way to do this. And I remember talking to agencies and consultancies. And of course they get paid to know all the answers. So they project as if they know everything. And and of course we know they didn't. They were doing their best to figure it out too. We made an early decision that we needed a COE for digital very early on just to get us started. We need a couple domain experts to give it credibility and thought leadership, but very quickly adopted a, you know, digital is the air we breathe and we have to be a truly channel agnostic organization. And everybody here needs to know digital. I think if you're building an agency today, one of the main reasons that you're probably thinking about insourcing is because of digital. You don't have that problem, but you may have a different set of problems. And I would think that a lot of it revolves around strategy and creative. I don't think that the best in-house advertising agency is, is really led by advertising strategy. It's led by marketing strategy. And you're still, even though it's an in-house agency and it has all those resources, it's still a marketing department. You know, So I think coming at it as it's strategically led but then, you know, it's got creative chops and that it really is agnostic is the way to do it. And the talent strategy is a subject that we could talk about for right. for days and days and days. Yeah. Although I think it's getting, you know, when I was back in the day, when I was running the in-house agency and I was trying to acquire talent from agencies, it was hard. I think it's a different ball of wax now. I think there are more mm-hmm. people that look, you know, a little differently at in-house versus, you know, New York City or San Francisco or wherever. Right. And I think that's an advantage. No, I think you're right. I think the agency environments have changed over those years too. They're not as attractive as they once were. No, it, it's it, that's probably true. And that's too bad because yeah. there's so many things that are really special right. about external agencies too. And, you know, hopefully as the dust settles on all of this change, you know, everybody kind of settles out into a, into a really good place, right. but you can see the consultancies and the agencies and the publishers all rushing into the same territory. <laughs> yeah. You know, well, internal agencies, do you, you ever worry about the echo chamber effect or brand missteps? How do you think about that? Yeah. I mean, I don't think I think about brand missteps any differently than an external agency would. 
And I know, for example, you know, the famous Pepsi, you know, debacle is through a lot of shade on in-house agencies. Mm-hmm. I don't think that was fair to Pepsi and it certainly wasn't fair to in-house agencies. I think there's plenty of, in fact, many, many, many more ill-advised, well-intended, but poorly executed advertising campaigns that came out of external agencies than came out of in-house agencies. Of course. So there's, the insularity is definitely an issue you have to guard against. And that's one of the reasons why we do also have external agency partnership. So we do have a creative agency of record and actually that partnership, you know, to be honest, and if they were sitting here with me, they'd say the same thing. It's hard to know where one ends and one begins in terms of the team, but home base is a different home base. And when they go back to the ranch and they're immersed in their culture and surrounded by multiple brands and different categories and inspiration that, you know, is pouring in Mm -hmm. from all directions, that's very different than what we have internally. So one plus one equals three if you get it right. The in-house insight, the relationship building, the, the ability to just kind of cut to the chase with an in-house agency is fantastic and can do something that an external agency would probably never be able to duplicate. But likewise, if you can add some of that external inspiration and freshness and get outside of the category thinking, when you put the two together, it can be really, really powerful. Hmm. Now, Switching gears a little bit. Yeah. There's so many social issues today. Yep. Right. And brands are taking a stand from time to time. So there's a lot out in the world. How do you see brand companies needing to engage in those types of activities? And, you know, what advice would you give others trying to build their corporate reputations? Yeah. That's, I mean, that is the number one question that I think I've run into again and again as I've interacted in the communications professional space, at, whether it's conferences or you know informal gatherings. And I don't think it's going away anytime soon. I will say, I think that there was an early hypersensitivity and overreaction and a tendency for people to, a bias to action that may have been a little overstated, but that seems to have settled out. You know, the decisions of when to engage and when not, and this is easier said than done. Right. There's certain basic screens. Does it align to your business interest? Is it commercially sensible for mm-hmm. you? Because if, if you take a stand on an issue that has absolutely no connection to your commercial interest, you know, there's at least 50% of the people are going to see right through that and think you're pandering. Right. And you're going to be punished in some way, or, or at least you're going to win one and lose one and, and you're right back where you started. And then there's your values. And we all have them. I would think that probably somewhere between 60 and 75% of the values of corporations across America are actually shared DNA. I think we probably <laughs> all would agree on a set of core values. But then beyond that, there, depending on the industry you're in or whatever, you may have specific things that make you who you are, that you're fiercely dedicated to, and that has to be a guide. But then, you know, there's, it's case by case. I've gone through the process of trying to come up with the decision tree. What is the if-then decision tree that's going to help me and others at this company decide mm-hmm. when to engage on an issue? Invariably, you run into the same problem, which is at some point, it's case by case. And there's, there is a very unique risk-reward analysis that needs to go on. I would say that the most important thing is consider all the angles, all the constituencies, and bring the right people to the table to make that decision. And certainly, you know, if it's really hot, make sure that you have alignment straight up through the C-suite up to the board. All right. Okay. That's good advice. The financial services category... Some might say it's a little sleepy at times. No. Uh, <laughs> Who says that? <laughs> <laughs> Trying to be kind. Yeah. Uh, you know, they're not known for breakthrough yeah. you know, for consumers. Mm-hmm. And how do you think about it? Because you guys have done some really interesting campaigns. Yeah, thanks. It's a little bit of a pet peeve of mine, this phrase, it's a low engagement category that goes around, which is true. Like 
fundamentally true. People don't wake up every day of their life thinking about or engaging with financial services. That's just true. But oftentimes that phrase is used in a different context, which is capitulation on creativity and strategy. And, you know, sort of it's a proxy for it'll never work or don't even bother trying. And that drives me crazy when I hear that. (laughs) One of the reasons I've been at Prudential as long as I have is I think financial services is incredibly fascinating. I think in an age where companies and industries are trying to find and express their purpose. If you want to understand how marketing is changing and how that will affect your brand, you need future proof the podcast from Kantar that tells you how to find growth. Created in conjunction with Side Business School at Oxford University, the Future Proof podcast provides a unique perspective on what truly makes a difference. To understand what's winning in marketing, subscribe to Future Proof, a Kantar podcast now. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. You don't have to look far with financial services companies. Some companies, I'm looking at my guitar that's hanging on the wall here. And, you know, what does that guitar string company say about their company purpose? You know, they're going to reverse engineer something that's going to sound great, like make the world happier through music, you know, which is great. Right. But it's a little bit of a stretch, you know. (laughs) Financial services companies cut to the core of life. Everybody's quality of life, everybody's ambition is in some way supported by financial services. It's life or death stuff. It's some of the most compelling stuff that you can think about. It's the TV programming that we watch, the stories of people's successes and failures. And and even if you look at the kind of shows we tend to watch these days, like Billions and Empire and Shark Tank and all that, we actually really love (laughs) money. money. (laughs) We love money stories. We love them both ways. We love to see the takedown of a villain. We love to see, you know, someone rising from nowhere and making a killing. We love all that. But somehow the category... When it comes to packaging products and services that do good things for people has tended to be sleepy. So we tried to not do that. We try to take fresh angles on old ideas. We try to come up with fresh insights and we always try to stretch creative into places that people haven't seen before. And I think, you know, so far we've done a pretty good job with Bring Your Challenges. That's interesting. I've never thought about financial services that way, but when you describe it and what we watch on TV, you're right. Like everything, most of the shows I watch have something to do with either crime or money. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and then the headlines you read. Right. No, it's right? very you true. Know, I mean, what's everybody loves the lottery winner. <laughs> it's true. True. What do you think the financial sector should be doing and what are you trying to drive towards here at Prudential? I think, you know, we're living in a time where I think you could argue that companies like Prudential are more important than they've ever been. If you look at what's going on in our society and back to the issues that you referenced earlier, you know, a lot of that tension has the same point of origin and that's this reality of a wealth gap. And putting aside how we got here or what the policy prescriptions might be and all that, there's just a lot of people out there that need help. And I think financial services companies have a commercial interest in that, but also a purpose-driven moral obligation to do it, which is why when I think of marketing financial services, I think of that as a very purposeful endeavor. Mm -hmm. 
it's, I don't think about it as selling. I think about it as solving. So I, you know, when financial services companies come to the table with that mindset, you know, maybe it'll challenge you to work a little harder, to crack the code, Mm -hmm. to be a little smarter, to take a little bit more risk. But I do think, look, we have a financial literacy issue in this Mm -hmm. country that financial services companies cannot solve. Until financial literacy is taught in the public education system, our culture will probably never be really financially literate. And I don't think that the financial services industry, even if we all came together and said, we're going to make an issue of this and we're going to create a financially literate society, I don't think we could do it. But there's a different obligation and that is to make it easier. You know, And I don't think you need to be so financially literate if the solutions that are afforded to you and the channels that you access them through and the way they serve you is just easier, just simpler, more elegant, more plain language. So I, I think that's part of the mission. Interesting. As I was doing my research, Prudential has been around for 140 years. Is that 1875? Yeah. Yeah. I didn't realize, and I may have it off, but I think they started insuring workers so that they could actually bury their relatives. Is that right? right? Yeah. About a block from here. Yeah. Yeah. They, John Dryden is the founder. Newark 1875 is going through rapid industrialization. There are different industries that are taking off here. Leather goods, celluloid, Thomas Edison invented the stock ticker here. There's a lot of interesting things happening, but like today, you know, there are people that are really disproportionately enjoying the the fruits of that. And then there's a worker class that's less privileged. Mm. And John Dryden saw, again, both a societal need, but also a commercial interest and said, in some cases, these were good people that just didn't even have enough money for the dignity of of a burial. Mm -hmm. So it started with something as humble as that and a basic belief that financial security should be within reach of everyone. And ordinary life insurance in the United States is born here in Newark. And not long after that, Newark becomes the more insurance is sold in Newark than anywhere in the country. I think Hartford later takes over at some point. But yeah, that's how the company started. That's interesting. And, you know, it seems like you're still working around that core purpose, right? Of Very much helping so. people, yeah. which is radiating into your communications, and your marketing efforts. What's the end game? How do you bring all of this together? What do you mean by end game? Well, if you're firing on all cylinders, yeah. right? You've got your internal agency, you've got your communications capability, you're focused on kind of social issues and how to engage in the yeah. world. What does success look what like? What does success it, look yeah. like? Yeah. Yeah. I Well, I would say starting with the mission, right? I would mm-hmm. say that we as a company are feeling very, very good that we're doing everything that we can for as many people as we can to solve the financial issues that sit in front of them, Mm -hmm. to enable them to enjoy a great life or have financial security or be prepared for the unexpected and so forth. That's what we do. So starting with that, and that gets back to sort of my mission orientation to marketing. Mm -hmm. From, you know, back into the traditional metrics of are we winning or losing as brand marketers or reputation managers, I would say Prudential is among the highest rated in terms of corporate reputation that would have a halo on all aspects of business as reputation does. You know, we already are among one of the most admired companies in the world. We've had a pretty good streak in terms of fortunes most admired, but I think we could engender even more admiration, frankly, as as a corporation around the world, if people knew more Mm -hmm. about what we really do. I think our social value story at Prudential is an amazing story that we've just been a little humble about telling, and I think we should tell it more starting with the story that we just shared a minute ago. Right. You know? The company has a tremendous impact on society through its business, but also as a philanthropist and convener and policy advocate and so forth. I would say that our brand 
while certainly Prudential and The Rock and all that is iconic, mm -hmm. I think we like a lot of brands. We still have room to grow. I think millennials are getting to know us still. And we have a little bit of a different challenge in, in terms of introducing ourselves to millennials. They have different values, different ways of engaging, different expectations. So I think success is making a really, really strong relationship with millennials and also better appreciation for our, the other aspects of what Prudential does. A lot of people, when you say Prudential, they think life insurance and everybody understands why we've been, we are the largest life insurance company in North America now, but we're a huge player in other businesses. We're a top 10 asset manager with more than a trillion in client assets or a trillion <laughs> in assets under management, I should say. We're a huge retirement provider, one of the biggest in the country, playing a huge role in solving the retirement crisis. And we're very much an innovator in the financial services category. So all of those things could be better understood. I like it. One of the things I like to do, and we're going to change gears here a little bit, is get to know the person across the table. Sure. And I think listeners like to kind of understand each person that comes on the show. In that vein, I love asking this question, which is, is there an experience of your past that kind of defines who you've become? I can't say that there's some event that occurred that made me who I am. And I actually, I am one of these people, especially as I get older, that I believe it's so much more nature than nurture <laughs> as I become more and more like my dad. <laughs> so I think a lot of that is hardwired, but I do have to say, um, growing up a twin. So I have a twin brother and he looks and sounds just like me. <laughs> and it's hard to describe. What was your name again? <laughs> it's hard. I'll answer it anything. It's hard to describe to people what it's like being a twin because it's like, I don't, it's the only thing I knew. Right. It's a little bit like me asking you, what's it like not being a twin? But there is something about spending your entire life with someone who is very much your clone <laughs> and plays a lot of roles in your life throughout your life, whether they're your, you know, your best friend growing up or whether, or if you're on the outs, you know, your biggest right. enemy or, but I would say there's a tremendous amount of competition in that. <laughs> and I mean that in a good way. No, yeah. Help and I help. think if my brother were here, he'd say, yeah, the same thing that, that you sort of compete and inspire best performances. And, you know, there were times growing up where I'd see him excel at something that I wish I you know, I had done as well. And it would make me either decide to try to do better than him or at least match it or quit and get out of the business. You know what I mean? <laughs> and he probably would say the same thing. And I think that created some drive in me as well as just great parents who kind of let me be me. They knew how to lead by example rather mm -hmm. than lecturing, which was the right style for me. So mm -hmm. yeah. Where'd you grow up by the way? I was born in New York state in Rome, New York on Griffiths Air Force Base, which I don't think is there mm -hmm. anymore but pretty quickly moved to Pennsylvania. Okay. So west of Philadelphia. Okay. And most of my life in fairly rural Chester County. Gotcha. Gotcha. What fuels you? What drives you today? You know, getting up and coming in and doing this job every day. I wake up every day inspired by knowing that we could do better. <laughs> and I don't mean that as that's not some backhanded mm -hmm. remark at all. I think anyone who has the kind of job that I do should come to work feeling that way. I mean, there's no such thing as a hundred. That's why I was asking when you said, what's the end game? It's like, there never really is an end game. <laughs> I'm sensing that now. I yeah. think that, you know, the marketing communications field is one of the most fascinating spaces anywhere in the economy right now. I mean, the kind of change that's going on in Marcom and has been going on for the last 20 years is unbelievable. And it's either going to scare the bleep out of you or inspire you. 
So I choose to be inspired by it and challenged by it. I really enjoy being in a role where I can't if I wanted to, and it's okay that I don't know everything. I got comfortable with that some time ago, that it it would just be impossible. And frankly, I saw a lot of leaders, peers or mentors who were trying to master everything at a time where everything was just exploding and moving too fast. And you just can't do it. That old hierarchical model where the person in the corner office is the master of everything is just gone. (laughs) I like that. I like surrounding myself with people that know more than me or smarter than me that I can learn from. You don't have to always learn from people that are above you on an org chart, you know? So (laughs) I really enjoy that. And I mean, far and away, the people, I guess, is the number one thing. I wake up in the morning, I think about the people that I'm going to go see at work. And with almost invariably, it puts a smile on my face. And I think about, I can't wait to roll up my sleeves and work with them. Great. Well, speaking of learning, are there brands or companies or causes that you follow or you think other people should take notice of? Well, I think the topic we hit earlier around issues, mm-hmm. rather than following any single brand, but I think you know, really studying that mm. is important for everyone, whether you're a chief communications officer or a CMO or supporting one of those functions. There's probably no better learning than from other people's successes and failures. And I know there's a lot of research on this, but we're in uncharted territory. And I think that I've read a lot of great research about people's stated intentions, survey-based, but the distinction between what people say they'll do and what they actually do is something that I think needs to be better understood. So as we're thinking about belief-driven buyers and are they going to reward certain brands and punish others, they say they will, right? but do they? Hard to know. The millennials, you know, have sort of shown up on the scene and, you know, there's a lot of head scratching and people trying to figure out these millennials. And I think we don't know whether the millennials are going to stay the millennials. Right. You know, I mean, just because they seem to have a certain set of values that matter to them today doesn't mean that growing up isn't going to change them just like it changed all the rest (laughs) of us before. So I think that need, you know, we need to study all that. So I definitely like watching lots of brands, but it's hard for me to point to any one brand that I think, you know, they've really knocked it out of the park. I do think it's worth noting, however, that right now you've got three different paid media campaigns from three substantial brands, Facebook, Uber, and Wells Fargo, who are all simultaneously apologizing and all have different reasons for apologizing. Mm -hmm. And- there's hard lessons in that and, and something to really pay attention to. And I think people who study corporate reputation are going to be watching very closely at how those companies recover mm-hmm. and whether the strategies and tactics that they're putting in play right now seem to be having any material lift to the reputation. Yeah, no, it's, a, it's definitely one to watch. Yeah. And no need to comment, but, you know, Wells Fargo, I thought it was over and then it, it keeps coming. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately for them. Right. And that's so. one of the toughest places that you can be in. Yeah. yeah. Well, last question for you. Where do you think the future of marketing is going to go? What do you think it's going to look like? One of the things I love about it is that no one can possibly know. <laughs> and I would never be that guy that passes him off himself off as some sort of marketing futurist because I just don't, frankly, I don't think they exist. I do think there are some things that we can say for sure. I think the hype around AI is real. Hmm. I think we're probably, in general, underprepared mm-hmm. for the implications of AI. I'm not one of those people that thinks that there's a Terminator scenario <laughs> out there where machines are going to take over the earth. Yeah. Maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> but 
in terms of the transformational power of AI in marketing, I think that that's something that we all need to pay very, very close attention to. And if if we think algorithms Mm -hmm. was a game changer, what happens when machine learning AI is actually the one intermediary that you need to sell to, to get to your customers? You know, I mean, in general, you know, the internet democratized everything. It took brokers out of the way and a lot of industries have been able to go direct to consumer and that's great. And customer relationship marketing really became the sort of the golden age of that. And customer centricity is huge. But what happens when the gatekeeper is an AI algorithm? Right. You know, and we're all running around trying to understand what Google's algorithm is doing. (laughs) What happens when everything is being directed through some kind of AI bot? supplying insight or flat out telling people what to buy. That's a pretty fascinating and downright scary kind of future, I think, to think about. It is a scary proposition. I thought that was my last question, but I have one follow-up. Are you in the internal agency, are you testing or experimenting with anything related to AI or machine learning? Well, if I told you, I'd have to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> no, look, I mean, look, Prudential, obviously, like a lot of companies, yeah. every company has yeah. to invest in AI. Right. And we do have some applications of AI that we use in my organization to help mm-hmm. in terms of insight and decision-making. But I'll, I'll leave it at that. Okay, no worries. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I no, I appreciate it. it. It's fun. Marketing Today is brought to you by Atomic. Atomic focuses on unleashing the growth potential for clients we serve. Atomic is a strategic consultancy specializing in business, marketing, brand, and innovation. Our singular goal is to help you accelerate your efforts with the right mix of expertise, analysis, and creativity. Check us out at Atomic.com. A-T-O-M-C-K.com. Hi, it's Alan again. Marketing Today was created and produced by me, with writing and editing by Kevin Greeley, social media support by Megan Woods, art and graphic design by Sarah Dell. If you're new to Marketing Today, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends and colleagues about the show. I love to hear from listeners, and you can contact me at marketingtodaypodcast.com. There you'll also find complete show notes with links to anything we talk about on any episode. You can also search our archives. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. If you want to understand how marketing is changing and how that will affect your brand, you need Future Proof, the podcast from Kantar that tells you how to find growth. Created in conjunction with Side Business School at Oxford University, the Future Proof podcast provides a unique perspective on what truly makes a difference. To understand what's winning in marketing, subscribe to Future Proof, a Kantar podcast now.